Good morning. So good to be in the house with you guys. We're starting a new series today called James, Advice for Refugees Traveling the Jesus Road. I want to kind of set this up, help us understand what the, the book of James is all about, because we'll be, for the next several weeks, we'll be in the book of James. Um, I'm holding in my hand, what was it, when I was 12 years old, I thought this would be my retirement plan. <laughs> this is a rookie card for some running back from the Lions, the only good thing that ever came out of the Lions. Is a, what? I'm sorry. Barry, Barry Sanders rookie card right here. Barry Sanders rookie card. And I thought that by the time I was 39, this thing would be worth tens of thousands, and I'd be able to retire off of tens of thousands. <laughs> Do you know how much this is worth now? I took it to a pawn shop. They don't even want to talk to me. Like, nah, it's junk. I was get, I, but, but anyway, I, I just pulled this out recently because I wanted to show my son my, all these baseball cards and basketball cards and football cards that I collected back in the 90s. And he was like, wow, this is cool. And he doesn't know what he's looking at, but it's kind of cool. It's like a card. And he's checking them out. And, uh, and, and he asked me this really profound question. He said, Dad, why did you collect these? And I was like, um, I never what? I wasn't into sports at all. Still am not. The only thing I know about Barry Sanders is from Tecmo Super Bowl, which is a Nintendo game. You do that play, you win every time. So my son says, why'd you do it, Dad? And I was like, "Um," I had to think about it for a second. Why did I collect sports cards? Really simple. My big brother did it. That's the only reason. I ever got into sports cards because my big brother did it. And my big brother was cool, and I wanted to be like my big brother. There was a lot of things. I got to thinking, there's a lot of things about my life since like being little that like were shaped just because I wanted to be like my big brother. I've told you before, I prefer Purdue over IU. Why? Because my big brother says that that's the way it goes. <laughs> I didn't even know what IU was. I thought it was a pitchfork symbol, like the IU. When I, was, I didn't know, but Purdue was better. I just, because my brother said so. I, I became a DC Talk and Carmen fan. Why? Because my big brother said it was great. Anyone else have a big brother, big sister you look up to? You're, you're, you're a younger sibling. I, yeah, you're a younger sibling. You look up, you're like, yeah, I would do that. I want to be like that guy. A little bit. We're not the only ones. We're not the only ones. There's actually a guy in the Bible James, who wrote the book of James, who was a younger brother, and his big brother left incredibly big shoes for him to fill. His name was Jesus Christ. Ever heard of him? (laughs) In the Bible, we we know about three Jameses. Two of them were one of the 12 disciples. So there was James, son of Zebedee. This is the James of Peter, James, and John. That's that James. And then there was another James that was one of the 12 disciples. He was called James the Lesser. I feel really bad for that guy. Like, poor, poor guy. But uh, it didn't mean he was less than, it was, he was shorter than. Is what James the shorter guy is what they're trying to differentiate between the two Jameses. But then there's a third James who was not one of the 12, uh, uh, 12 disciples that we read about in the, um, in the Gospels. There was the third James that was a brother of Jesus. See, Mary was the mother of Jesus and God was the father of Jesus. But the Mary and Joseph of the nativity story, they went on and 
got married. After Jesus was born, they went on and got married and had other kids. So all those other kids of Mary and Joseph were half-brothers and sisters to Jesus Christ. Make sense? They were half-brothers and sisters. One of those was named James. We know from the Gospels that Jesus' own family did not accept him as Messiah until after he came back alive. And we also know from Scripture that Jesus, after his resurrection, he came and showed up to, Jesus, to James, revealed himself to James, and James later became accepted as one of the, uh, one of the apostles. <clears throat> See, uh, I wanna, I'm setting up the book of James here, okay? After Jesus ascended into heaven, all the Christians kind of huddled together in Jerusalem. This is the city of God for centuries. This was the center of, of everything God did was in Jerusalem. So they were there in the city of God. Certainly this will be the center of the Christian church, right? Like they're all huddled there together. And then things got hard. We see in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, where all the Christians were. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We call that the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora. They just scattered. They scattered all over. This wasn't just name-calling. Oh, you Christians. It wasn't that. Uh, the next verse goes on. It says, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison just for following Jesus. This is the story of how the church began. Satan was trying to put an end to it. He's going to crush it. If he can just, all the believers are here in Jerusalem, if he can just get them all in jail, silence them, it'll die with them. And it's over. What Jesus did is done. But instead, that persecution scattered all of them. All of, see, what the devil meant for evil, God flipped it and turned it around for good. We read the very next verse. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they were. And that's how the church began. That's how the church spread. That's how the gospel spread. It was because of a, of a problem, because of persecution. All right, so Jerusalem had most of the Christians emptied out of it. The apostles are there, except uh, some of them went out to go help the believers who were scattered. Like they heard about a problem over here, and they sent one of the apostles over to, to deal with that and come back. Um, and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem was Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, James. Peter and the brother of Jesus, James, were in charge of the Jerusalem church. And Peter kept constantly going out on missionary trips to help so that left James in Jerusalem. He was the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem just because he was steady Eddie. He was stable. Uh, he actually had a nickname of Camel Knees. He had Camel Knees because, uh, I don't know if they called him Camel Knees James. I don't know what they called him. Camel, camel Knees Jim. But he had bumps on his knees that resembled a camel because he prayed so much on his knees. That's what legend Legend says, isn't that interesting? Um, he was a steady Eddie, really a stable, uh, stable pastor for the people in Jerusalem who fled. They ran for their lives. Pastor James has a heart for these people trying to walk out the Jesus road all over in different cities. He has a heart for them. And he wrote a letter to them, a letter that would get passed around from house church to house church to house church for all Christians to read. And that letter we have today is the book of James. And it's trying to help Christian refugees 
along the Jesus road. If you think about it, we're refugees too. Here, all Christians on planet Earth are refugees if you think about it. We're just hanging out here. We have this earth time, but this isn't ultimately, ultimately where we belong. We belong in heaven. That's our heavenly home. The New Testament is filled with language like this. Uh, Paul wrote, our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, I'm an American, but my first citizenship is to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. And Peter, the other guy that was in charge of the church in Jerusalem, Peter says, I appeal to you, my friends, as strangers and refugees in the world. We're hanging out here. We're hanging out here until our heaven time. Makes sense? We're refugees here on this earth. So today we're displaced from our heavenly home and we need some advice on how to live our life as refugees on planet earth. We're going to look at James chapter 1. You would think that the pastor of a church who's, who, who's all the people in it fled for their lives, fleeing severe persecution. You would think that that pastor, when he wrote a letter to him, he would exude a lot of compassion, right? You'd think he'd be really nice, say things like, how are the kids? Are you safe? I hope, you're, I hope you're safe. Make sure when you get settled down, you take a mental health day before, before you, you, you try to stir up anything. Just, you, you would think he would be kind of compassionate, but James is not. He pulls no punches. He saw his big brother Jesus die on the cross, and he wants to make sure anybody that's following big bro is going to take this seriously. We have to take this seriously. So James lets us have it. And let's man up. We can take it. He's, he's going he's to give it to us because we need to take this seriously. Do not expect the Jesus road to be a paved road. It is bumpy. It is bumpy by design. It's supposed to be. It's not a consequence of anything. It's supposed to be bumpy. And I'll explain that why on my first point here. Uh, here's what I'm trying to say. When you're, when you're facing challenges in your life, don't say, oh my gosh, oh, it's falling apart. Like, it breaks my heart when people hit hard times and then they say, oh, but it didn't work. Uh-huh. And they, they leave the faith. But it was in the middle of working. Yes, you just left in the middle of it working. There's nothing, it's not supposed to be easy. It was never supposed to be easy. That's what James is, that's the idea here in the, in the first chapter of James. I'll break this down a little bit more. We're going to dig into it. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who wrote it, James. Now let's see, who do you write it to? To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And here come all the warm and fuzzy friendlies. Greetings. It's the only nice thing he says in the whole book. In fact, I think maybe in the original language, there's this parenthetical, buckle up, buckaroo, here we go, maybe. James teaches us some important uh, lessons about trials and temptations. Here's the first one. Number one, building perseverance makes us look more like Christ. Building perseverance makes us look more like Christ. James offers his very best comfort to his church at the beginning of 
his book, and he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. Anybody want to slap him already? (laughs) Come on, James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what I'm saying. People hit trials and they go, oh, that didn't work. It was in the middle of working. Let the testing of your faith finish its work. He's saying, hop back in. Don't jump out. Hop, stay in it. Stay in it. It's doing something. But it hurts. Yeah. It's doing something. Building perseverance does what? It makes us look more like Christ. Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, the thing, when you have the Spirit of God in your life, when you're connected to God, fruit happens. Fruit comes out. So just by virtue of being connected to God, you'll be fruitful. And the fruit of the Spirit is things like love, joy, and peace. A lot of the fruit of the Spirit come pretty easy. This one, perseverance, does not come that easy. You don't just stay connected to God and whoop. You have to stay connected to God in the midst of a hard time. There has to be resistance. These big, huge muscles on my arm didn't get that way without resistance. Follow me? If I'm not putting any resistance, that will not grow. It will stay as weak as it is today. (laughs) And that's actually the idea behind perseverance. You have to endure it. You have to endure it. It's uh, easy to stay connected to Jesus until it's hard. And that's what perseverance is all about. You do not persevere when everything's easy. That's just living. You persevere. You begin persevering when it's hard. It's easy to stay connected when things are going well. It gets harder to stay connected to God when you lose your job when your marriage is falling apart, when your kids don't respect you, when your dad doesn't give you attention, when your friends or your coworkers keep talking about you behind your back. That's, that's harder. But that is when you must stay connected to God. That's when you must stay connected to God because if you do, then the fruit of the Spirit perseverance will come out in your life. It's interesting that James talks about testing here. He says perseverance must be tested. The word that he used, testing, is the same word that he would use if he was describing a silversmith. The way a silversmith would work on silver is they would take a hunk of, a hunk of silver and they would heat it up. And when they heated it up, all the impurities of the silver would rise up to the top. They called that the dross. And all the silver would be at the bottom. And the silversmith would skim off the dross, the impurities, and that's some other things. Impurities in the silver. It's iron or copper or tin or just dirt. And then he would let it cool off and he'd lean over and he'd look at it. And then he would repeat that process. He would heat it up, skim off the impurities, let it cool down, and look at it. Heat it up, take off the impurities, let it cool down, and look at it. Looking at it was a significant step because he would know how pure it was because silver was, um, silver was incredibly reflective. 
So if there was no impurities, he would be able to look right in and see a reflection of himself. Could it be that the impurities in our life, that when we, when the heat, the heat that's happening in our life, the problems that ha- that's happening in our life, could it be that it's not coincidence? Is it possible it's not even an attack of the devil, but the work of God? Yes. Heating up our lives, testing our perseverance, will you endure it? Could it be that God, the master, wants to test our perseverance, remove the impurities, and see if he sees his reflection when he looks back at us? Could it be that the master wants to see if we look like him? Could it be that the junk in our lives is designed to help us look more like God? We need to look a little more like him, right? I believe the trials we're facing may not be punishments, attacks, or even coincidences, but part of God's work, trying to make us look more like him. Perseverance cannot be granted. I heard somebody say, Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. (laughs) That doesn't happen. Perseverance, just like muscles, perseverance does not happen. Like it can't be given to you. You have to build it. It has to be built. It has to be created by way of enduring. If I'm making sense, say yeah. Yeah. Here's number two, the second thing we learned. God puts the pieces together. God puts the pieces together. So uh, James continues. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So all the pieces of your life can can be put back all together. If any of you lacks wisdom about that, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So James is saying, if you don't have enough wisdom to see how the junk you're in is designed to help you look more like God, ask God to show you. Ask God to give you wisdom so you can see how that problem you're in is supposed to make you look more like him. That's good wisdom. If you take all the pieces of your life and you give them to God, he can put them together. Romans 8.28 says, says, we know that all that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans. All the pieces that happen to us, all the, the junk, all the, all the hurt, all the things that happen to us is working for our good if we take those pieces and give them to God. If we, if we, let, them, if, if we let them fit into his pieces. Yeah, but I only got two pieces. Yeah, we're part of a church. You don't have all the pieces, but we got all the pieces. You get the difference? We're a part of a church. We have all the pieces. It's kind of like, like a cake. If I give you a stick of butter and say, here you go, you can have this for lunch, you're not going to appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, if you do, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Eating a stick of butter. If I give someone else a bowl of baking powder or gluten-free flour, what are you going to do with that? You eat it with a spoon? That's not going to be very fun. But if you take all those pieces and hand them to somebody, hand them to a master that knows what to do with them, he can put them together just the right way, fit the pieces together, put some heat on it, and bring you back a cake. And now you got lunch. Breakfast, too. You have a cake. This is a hard truth to accept when we feel like we've only been handed 
sticks of butter and gluten-free flour. What's this for, God? Why, why, why do you have me in this mess? Give it to God. He can put pieces together. And maybe you don't even have all the pieces, but your brothers and sisters here have other pieces. It can make something great of your life. God's the one that can be in control of them. But he will not put... He, God's not going to put together a jigsaw with pieces that you're holding in closed fists. Yeah, give the pieces to him. Jesus preached the same idea. Big brother Jesus preached the same idea on how the parts come together in Matthew 5. He had the Sermon on the Mount where he talked about Christian ethics. And Jesus said, said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. I just imagine that little brother James. See, at this time, James, when Jesus said that, James had not accepted his big brother as Messiah yet at this point. And I just imagine that James might have been off in the distance a little bit hearing his big brother say, you're blessed when people insult you. And he, he would have to be face palming. Like, <laughs> never seen him. No. <laughs> blessed are, you're blessed when, 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 uh, when, when everyone's talking bad about you. That's blessed. Yet James saw all the pieces come together and he starts his book the same way. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. Big brother said you're blessed when people persecute you. He saw the pieces come together. And this gets tricky because there's a lot of really wealthy people who seem to be doing great. And there's a lot of people that seem to have their life together yet who have not handed all the pieces over to God. Why do they have their life together if they haven't put all the pieces in God's hands? I don't get it. But James goes on and he talks right to him. James chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they'll pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So even if you think things are going well, things may not be going as well as you think they are. Only when you put them in the hands of Jesus. I don't believe this verse is saying that, that it's evil to have money. Uh, this, this verse is saying that all of our parts need to be in the hands of God, including our money. It's, it's his. God will put the pieces together. So if God puts the pieces together, are you willing to give them to him? Lord, here's, here's all my broken pieces. Here's my broken checkbook. Here's my broken attitude, my broken perspective. Here's my, God, here's my health. Here's how I feel about my health. Do you trust God to put the pieces together? He's the only one that can. the third thing we learn in the first chapter of James. True love for God is discovered. True love for God is, is revealed. It's discovered. James says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. The guy that sticks with it. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised 
to those who love him. So what James is saying is, is if you get through the trial, if you have your, your faith tested and, and your perseverance is built up and you're still on the other side of the trial, you're still following God, now we know who actually loves God. Now, now we know. Now we know. Like, God, it, it's one thing to say I love God, but it's revealed because I proved I love God. Like, God knows that I love him, but then he experiences that I love him because I put him above everything. Does this make sense? True love for God is discovered. It's really easy to say, I love God, and then keep right on doing whatever we were doing. Really easy to do that. But when your I love God is tested and heated up and, and you persevere through the test, those are the ones that truly love God. James here again, I think he's, he's kind of echoing back something he may have heard big brother Jesus say earlier. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. It's not conditional love here. It's not like, if you don't keep my commands, I don't love you anymore. It's nothing like that. He's just drawing a comparison. People that love God do. Like, it's, it is a characteristic of people that love God. They obey him. That's a characteristic. Like, football players wear helmets. Yes, it's a characteristic of a football player. Christians that love Jesus obey him. Amen. It's just a statement of fact. It's, it's how Christians that love Jesus behave. We obey him. So how's your love of God? You obey him? Is he in charge? Have you submitted? Is he in charge of your attitude? Is God in charge of your bank? Is he in charge of your mouth? Is he in charge of your mouth when somebody cuts you off on traffic? Two different things. It doesn't count, somebody said. It counts. It counts. Have you handed God your cell phone search history? Have you handed God your marriage? Have you handed God your relationship with that mean teacher or that mean boss or coworker? God can put the pieces together if you give them to him. You, you, you trust him with it. All right, so James is talking about this Christian life. The Jesus road is bumpy. It is not easy. There will be trials in the other area where it's bumpy, temptations, trials and temptations. He just finished talking about trials. Now we're going to talk about temptations. Here's number four. My sin, my fault. My sin, my fault. James says, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. God does give us trials. He does give us trials. He does not give us temptation. He does give us trials with beautiful, pure intention. He wants to help us. He wants to transform us to look more like him. That's why the trials come. To help us. Temptation is to hurt you. God does not do the temptation to cause you to fail. It's not, 
He doesn't have an evil intention. Ha <laughs> ha, now they're a sinner. <laughs> Got them. Lightning bolt. That was, that was what that was. God doesn't do that. He's not tempting. Satan does tempt. Satan is the tempter. That's what he does. He tempts, he tempts, he tempts. So why doesn't James say, when you are tempted, shake your finger at the devil? He doesn't say it. He says, don't blame God for it. It's your own fault. My sin, my fault. Why does James say it that way if Satan is the tempter? I think it's pretty simple. Satan tempts, but I do it. Satan tempts, but you're the one that does it. So our sin, our fault. James is making sure we don't have room to point the blame anywhere else. We're the one that did it. The language here uh, that James is using is the language that would be used to describe a fish uh, that's going straight. And then, like, they're swimming here. We're doing a little wiggle. And then they see a nice, shiny bait. They see a worm on the hook. They see a, a lure. And they go... And they get pulled away from the direction they were going. And their, their own evil intentions, right? They're enticed to this other thing. <laughs> swimming away. And so James is saying, swim away from that. Swim away from it. It's your own evil intention that's causing you to go, ah. You feel that? You're going towards God and then there's a, but it's so shiny. It's so shiny. Good fishermen, if they're going after a particular type of fish, if you're in a pond and you've got lots of different fish in that, really good fishermen know how to get the fish they want to catch. If they open up their tackle box, they're going to have a whole different set of lures. This one's going to catch a bass, and this one's going to catch a bluegill. Some fish need to hook down farther. Others need it up higher. They know exactly what to do to entice that fish. And if that fish swims close and gets too close and goes for it, it's going to get got. Satan is a counterfeit fisherman. He loves to counterfeit. And he knows the bait that will get your attention, does he not? Paul talked about it like this. He said, I love God's law with all my heart. But there's this other power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. You feel that? I know I'm not the only one. We're all like that. We have this, this thing. We want to do the right thing, but then shiny. Yeah. And we start swimming towards it. Something we know is not going to please God. We know is not God's best. But uh, so it looks so good. I think I'm going to like it. I think it's going to be good. I, I think. And we get God. What's the worm for you? When Satan goes fishing for you, what, what's he pull out of his tackle box? Is it sex? Pornography? Endless escapism? That can be books and TV? Listen, 
Christian TV can be a tool of the devil if it's if you're like if you're escaping from watching TV just escaping life and you watch it all day long. I watched Christian TV all day long. I'm a perfect saint. Yeah, but you're not even a, you're not even a present father. Like we have to do the things that God called us to do, yeah? If we, if we're it's not that wrong that I was doing it, but you're ignoring the thing that God did call you to do, that's wrong if it's getting in the way. We have to do the thing that God called us to do. What's the worm for you? Is it sex, pornography, pain deflectors, the pill, the alcohol, vaping, the Michigan gummies? Is your worm money, greed, selfishness? What's the thing? There, we've all got one. Satan likes to drop it to make us go, I think so. I think this is where I need to go. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. I'm going to like it. But you get God. James is warning us. He's trying to help you. He's trying to tell you, number five, mature sin kills It leads to death. It kills. James teaches then, after the desire has conceived, once you go off and get got, once the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. This is one of the most powerful pictures. James has a lot of like uh, illustrations in his book. I think this is the most powerful one. Because he's using words that we relate to a husband and a wife having a baby. Conceived, birth, full grown. And he, it's alluding to the, to the joy that a, a married couple would, would have when they find out they're pregnant. And they're so excited. And it's going to be so good. And we th- we're going to love this. We're so excited. This is going to be great. And then the baby comes and it's, it's stillborn. This is a powerful, powerful picture that James is trying to help us understand. We go after Jesus. We're good. We think we want it. We think we want it. We think we want it. You can think that all you want, but it's gonna lead to death. And James is warning us in as powerful of a language as he knows how to put together. This is a very strong word picture to help us get it. We think our sin is fun, relaxing, an escape, or a solution. But James is warning, it's death. It's death. This life or the next, you don't want this. You don't want this. It's not good. Just swim away, is what he's saying. Would you stand with me? So I'll stand together. So James gives this really strong warning. If you keep going this way, you're gonna get you're gonna get got. It's gonna lead to death. But the good news is it doesn't have to stay there. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told that anybody that confesses their sin and asks Jesus for help, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Or in other words, he'll take the hook right out. It doesn't have to have power over you. You've still got time. 
James went on and he told us what God's intention is. God's intention, his hope, his goal is not for death. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose, this is what God wants to do. He chose to give us birth, not death. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of all that God created, that we might be productive in God's kingdom. God's choice, God's plan is that there is life, not death. But that comes through his work. Let me explain it like this. God created us to be together. But our sin separates us from God and nothing we do can get rid of that sin. The penalty for the sin is death. So Jesus took that sin upon himself when he died on the cross and he came back to life which conquered it. And now anybody that points to Jesus as the answer and opens their life up to him can be together with God just like he wants it. Now some of us need to receive that for the first time today and others of us, we just need to stand on it again. Because James is warning us, this life is bumpy. If you're following Jesus on his road, It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be bumpy. There's trials. There are temptations. God wants us to have a clean heart, and he wants us to have a right spirit. A clean heart in that we're, we're not sinning, and he wants us to have a right spirit in that we can see that the problems we're in are designed to help us become more like him. Let's surrender to the Lord.